Welcome back to A Better Brand of Happiness. This is session 13. And this session continues our study of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I started that way back in session 10. And I, uh, I view this as one paragraph, verses 5, uh, sorry, yeah, verses 5 through 11, actually verses 1 through 11, I view as one paragraph, and we started studying it back in session 10. We looked at verses 1 and 2 in session 10, verses 3 and 4 in session 11, verses 5 and 6 in session 12. And just a quick review before we jump into today's session. The big idea, as you see on the screen, is... Because we are united with Christ, who valued and served us over himself, we should value and serve each other over ourselves. That's the major point that Paul is trying to emphasize in verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. The first part of that big idea, because we are united with Christ, is uh, given to us in the first couple of verses. It tells us that everything we have as Christians comes from being in Christ. He says in verse 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love. And so all of these are the results of our union with Christ. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul gets specific about um, what being other-centered means. So he says, because we share all these things in Christ, then we should stop worrying about them in a sense and being so focused on ourselves. But, but now they give us the freedom of being focused on others. And so Uh, Verses 3 and 4 tell us what that means. What does it mean to be centered on others or focused on others? Well, it means to purify your motives, for one, because uh, the first part of verse 3 says that we should um, get rid of all selfish ambition, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. These are self-centered motivations. And our union with Christ and all the benefits of that free us from these self-centered motivations. Being, being other-centered also means retraining your mind. The uh, end of verse 3 and end of verse 4 says, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so, but it takes a, a process of retraining because we're, we're naturally geared to be self-centered. And so Paul says in these verses at the end of verse 3, to value others against yourself. That is, place value on them. Make a conscious effort to do it. And so it, it takes work to uh, be focused on others instead of on ourselves. But the motivation in, for all of this comes from Christ himself, as we saw beginning in verse 5. In your relationships with, an, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. These verses tell us that although Christ was God, and had all the rights and privileges that go with being God, he, did not, he was not so self-centered that he was not willing to lay aside the, those rights and privileges um, in order to serve us. And so that's what the rest of this passage is getting at. The reason why every believer should think this way, the reason why we should be centered on other people is because Christ did it first. He was centered on us instead of on himself. That's what uh, verses five through 11 are really getting into. They're really teaching us why we should be centered on other people. And so uh, that's really a summary of where we've gone from session 10 through today's session. And um, as you've uh, already understood, in these sessions, I've gone into quite a bit of detail on these verses. That's why we're kind of creeping along a couple of verses at a time. And in our session today, I want to even go into more detail than usual. Normally, I've been covering like maybe around two verses or so, 
in each session. Today I want to talk about one word, one word in the Greek text, okay? And you can see that one word in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 7, where the scriptures say this, rather being made, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. This session is going to cover that verse, actually specifically the word that's translated nothing in the NIV, at least, of Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. So we're going to spend some time looking at this one particular word. Now, here's why, all right? I'm not going into detail on this for no reason. Here is my reason. Um, I want to look at this one word because this one word and the attempts that people have made over the centuries of, a Christian, of Christian time, but especially in the last 100 or 200 years or so, the attempts to interpret this one word have brought about all kinds of theological error and theological confusion. And so I think it's important to spend some time doing um, some careful analysis of this. And, and there are really kind of four aspects under which I want to look at this one word. First of all, I want to look at the word itself. Secondly, I want to look at the problems that have come from trying to interpret this word. Third, I want to look what the actual meaning of the word is in the context of this passage. And then fourth, I want to talk about what we can learn from biblical interpretation from all this. Remember, when I began, I said this is a class not only on the content of Philippians, but it's also a class where um, I want to teach you some principles of Bible study and interpretation along the way. And so um, one of my reasons for drilling down on this is because it's caused a lot of error and theological confusion, but also because it has some important Bible study principles for us. All right, so that's where we'll be going for the rest of the session this morning. And so let's look then first at the word itself. Let's look at the word itself. The word that we're looking at here, the one, one that's translated nothing in Philippians 2.7 in the New International Version of the Bible, um, comes from a Greek word, and this is sometimes called the kenosis problem, what I'm going to be talking about. In theology, this is called the kenosis problem. And that's because the uh, original Greek word here, that's translated nothing, is the word kanao. The word kanao, the Greek word kanao, is the word that's translated nothing. And uh, this word has a verb form and it has a noun form. Both are used in the New Testament. This one is in verbal form here. And elsewhere in the New Testament and elsewhere in Greek literature, this word kanao is translated empty. It's translated to empty. And that's why the ESV goes ahead and translates the, the verse this way. Philippians 2.7, But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. So you see the NIV says, rather, Jesus made himself nothing. The ESV says, Jesus emptied himself. Okay, and that's because this word, kanao, in other contexts, does mean to empty. Or it's used, it's translated also in other ways uh, with the word emptying. And so as a result of trying to understand this word, the church has been led into uh, many different areas of, uh, of struggle, all right? And so that gives us a little bit of an overview of the word itself, the word kanao. Now let's look secondly at the interpretational problems that have come from trying to interpret this word kanao. Scholars have, have proposed basically four interpretations for the concept behind this word kanao. In other words, in order to try to understand what emptying himself means in context, 
Scholars have proposed four different interpretations. Two of them are heretical, okay? And so I'm just going to tell you this up front. The first two I'm going to talk about cannot be the right interpretation for multiple reasons. And those reasons all make them heresy. They make them false doctrine, all right? And so I'm going to talk in detail about four of these interpretations. Two of them are false. And I'm going to try to emphasize to you the fact that they are false because I don't want you to walk out of the room thinking that's what they might mean. They don't mean this, all right? But they have uh, been uh, problems for um, the church over time. And so let's look at these four interpretations. The first one says this, the word kanao, the word to empty himself, according to the first interpretation, means that Christ emptied himself of his aspiration to be God. Christ emptied himself of his aspiration to be God. And again, before I say any more, this is false doctrine. Okay, so what I'm going to tell you is, is not true. It doesn't, it doesn't have any truth, biblically speaking, but it is one of the proposed meanings of this word. And this interpretation reinterprets everything about verses 6 and 7 that I've already taught you. All right, and so we actually have to back up to verse 6 to understand why verse 7 is interpreted this way. Verse 6 says in the NIV, "...who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage." The words translated very nature God, very nature specifically in verse 6, is a word that just means the form of in its most base kind of literal um, translation. That Christ was in the form of God. And so scholars have had to go to work on what this particular word means. And one of the interpretations of this is, um, as I talked to you in a previous session, that the Jehovah's Witnesses have, have had one idea about what this means, that Christ was, the, the, he was in the form of God in the sense that he was created like God, the first creation of God. But another way that this has been interpreted is what we call the image of God. Now, we believe that all of us are created in the image of God. The Bible teaches this in Genesis. It says that God made man, he made humanity in the form of God, in the image of God. Okay? So that part is, this, that strand of this false doctrine is actually true. It's biblical. We are created in the image of God. What makes this doctrine, or this interpretation, I should say, of Kana'o false, is that they say Christ was just a man just like any one of us. Okay? That's what they believe um, in verse, uh, we're going to get to in a minute, but like every other man, like every other human being, Christ was made in the image of God. And so they take verse 6, who being in the form of God, to mean Christ had the image of God in him. But then they take the next phrase, verse 6, to mean when it says, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I told you that to be used to his own advantage means to grasp in the last session. And I told you that, that there are various ways of interpreting that, that it could mean to be held onto, so Christ already grasps this, and he's holding it on, or he might be tempted to hold on to it, or it means to reach up and grasp something that you don't already have, okay? So this interpretation, this false interpretation of what it means to empty himself in verse 7, says that in verse 6, Christ was just a man, but he was a man created in the image of God, and he was tempted to reach up and try to grasp for divinity, all right? But instead of doing that, verse 7, Christ emptied himself of that aspiration, all right, that's the first interpretation. Now, why is this false? Well, one, because it denies the deity of Christ. All right, and so this interpretation is wrong, but it's one interpretation that says Christ was just a man like you and me, but he tried to reach up and grasp 
or he, had, he was tempted at least, or aspired to reach up and grasp d- divinity, but instead of doing that, he emptied himself of that ambition. All right, that's the first position. Uh, that's the first interpretation of what kenosis or emptying means in this passage. And as I said before, I'll say it again, it's false. All right, that's not what this passage is teaching. Second, the second interpretation is not that Christ emptied himself of his aspiration to be deity. That's position one. Instead, it says that Christ emptied himself of deity, right? And so this is even more heretical. Well, it's, it's equally heretical, I guess. It's, it's equally false. This position then says that Christ was God, all right? And so it interprets verse, verse 6 the way that I interpreted it, that Christ was God in very nature. But it says then um, in verse 6 that Christ did not consider being God something to be held on to at all costs, so he emptied himself, and they take this phrase emptied himself to mean Christ emptied himself of his deity. That is, when Jesus came into this world, the second person of the Trinity, the person we call Jesus, ceased to be God in order to become man. He changed fundamentally who he was. He stopped being God when he entered the human race. Okay, that's the second interpretation of this passage, of this, of this word, kanao, of emptying himself. And again, this is false doctrine. Because if Christ emptied himself of his deity, first of all, he changed, and God is one of, one of the attributes of God is that he doesn't change, all right? And so that's a, that is a whole new theological problem. Also, Jesus, throughout his time on earth, claimed to be God. And so if he stopped being God when he became man, how can he say, before Abraham was, I am, and those kinds of things? All right? And so this position is false, and it's a... It's a a serious problem if somebody takes it. All right. The third attempt to interpret this passage, this word kanao, is not that Christ emptied himself of his aspiration to be God or that Christ emptied himself of being God. Those are the first two. The third one is this. Christ emptied himself of the attributes of deity. The third position is that Christ was God and he is God, but he stopped having the attributes of God. All right, let me go into a little bit more detail about this one. This position holds that Christ was and is God and that he did not cease to be God when he became man. He retained the um, nature of godness, you might say. But before he became a man, as God, Jesus, the person we call Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had all of the attributes of God. That is, he knew all things, okay? His omniscience, we call that. He had all power, omnipotence, we call that, all right? Because he was God, Jesus had all of the attributes of God, and and that's true. We believe that. This position says when Christ became a man, he emptied himself of all of those attributes. And so it's saying he stopped knowing all things. He stopped having all power. He stopped being everywhere present in the fullness of his being. Now, there are nuanced ways of looking, this because, looking at this because some of the attributes of God are moral in nature. Some are non-moral. All right? The moral attributes of God are like his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and so on, his mercy. Well, no evangelical would say Jesus emptied himself of those. Jesus didn't stop being holy, for instance, when he became a man. And so some people will try to make a division and say, well, he lost the parts, that, the, parts of div- the parts of the attributes of divinity that only apply 
to God and God alone. That is, Jesus stopped being all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and so on. But he remained, he retained the moral attributes of God. All right, but neither one of these is actually correct. When Jesus became a man, he did not empty himself of the attributes of his deity, despite what this interpretation says. Because if, if, if um, the attributes of God are what makes God who he is, then how can you stop having them? That's the problem, all right? Um, one of the things that we believe as Christians is that God is pure spirit. And because he is pure spirit, he is really what his attributes are. God isn't a holy person. He is holy. God isn't a righteous person. He is righteous. Okay? And God isn't a person who's everywhere present in the fullness of his being. He is everywhere present. So that's, it's, it's essential to, to his nature as God. And so how could he stop having attributes? I mean, if you take attributes away from somebody, you fundamentally change who that person is. And so this position, while it's not, not heretical, in a, it, it tiptoes on the line of heresy because it, it's difficult to resolve with other things that we know to be true about God from the Scriptures. And so what would be left of the second person of the Trinity if he was stripped of these attributes? Well, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because it's, it's not answerable. It's not, it's not a, a genuine thing. And so um, this is one attempt to understand what this word kanao means in its context. And one of these positions is Christ emptied himself of the use of his attributes. Or actually, he emptied himself of his attributes. The fourth position is this. Christ emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes. Christ emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes. And so this position says that Christ was God before he became a man. And he is God once he became a man. He never stopped being God, according to this position. Also, according to this position, he did not stop having the attributes of God. This position doesn't say that Jesus divested himself or emptied himself of the attributes of God. Rather, it says he took those attributes and he submitted them to the will of the Father. Okay, and so Christ retained the ability to be everywhere present in the fullness of his being. He retained the ability to be, to be omniscient, to know all things. He retained the ability to be omnipotent, to have all power, and so on. But he submitted the use of those things when he became a man to God the Father. Okay, that is um, what this interpretation means. And I want to take a little bit more time on this one than I did on the first three. This one is not heretical and it doesn't border on heresy. In fact, there are lots of evangelical scholars who believe this to be the proper interpretation, including my own beloved professor of systematic theology, uh, Dr. Roland McCune, who passed away earlier this year. This was his position. This is what I was taught um, when I was in seminary. Okay? And, so, and, and the truth of the matter is, theologically, this may actually be true. I'm going to tell you in a minute that this is not what Philippians 2.7 is teaching. But it still might be true from other doctrines, from other passages of Scripture. Do you follow me? I don't think Philippians 2.7 is teaching this. But other passages of Scripture might be teaching it. All right? 
And, and the reason is because this may have already come to your mind. There are passages in the Gospels where Jesus says, I don't know certain things. Like, I don't know when the, the return of the Son of Man will be. He'll say, he, remember Jesus said, of that day and hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, or even the Son of Man, but the Father only. What does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus took the omniscience he had as God, the, the fact that God knows all things, and in some sense submitted it to the will of the Father. You also know passages where Jesus talks about re repeatedly being submitted to the will of the Father. And so this this um, interpretation may be correct theologically. The Bible might teach that Jesus submitted the use of his attributes to the Father. That may be true. But I don't believe that Philippians 2.7 is teaching this. You follow me? I think the doctrine might be right. I don't think Philippians 2.7 is teaching this. And so this is not heresy at all. In fact, as I've mentioned, there are many great conservative Christian scholars who believe that this was the correct interpretation of Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. But I don't think it is. I don't think the kenosis problem or the, kena, the word kanao, the emptying as it's sometimes translated of Christ in this passage, is referring to anything about his attributes at all. All right? And so the reason why we got to this position about the attributes of God is that some have taken... Um, verse 6, the, the, the phrase, who being in very nature God or being in the form of God, they've taken that, that phrase, the form of God, to be a description of the attributes of God. But, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's referring to Christ's essential nature, not his attributes. All right, And so if you take that away, then emptying himself doesn't have anything to do with the attributes because the attributes of God are not mentioned in this passage at all. All right, so those are the four positions, the four interpretations of this passage. All of them key on the idea of Christ emptying himself being something more than a figure of speech. It's not literal. I mean, if I literally emptied myself, that would mean like I would have to pull out all of my internal organs, right? Gross as that sounds, that's what a literal meaning of emptying himself might, might mean. All right? But all of these interpretations take that phrase, empty himself, not literally, but, but something that's very, very um, close to literal. They, they take it to mean a lot more than what I actually think it does mean. Okay, And so, um, so what's going on in this passage then? What are we to, to find out when we see that this passage says that Christ made himself nothing according to the NIV or emptied himself according to other translations like the ESV. What is, this, what is going on here? What is the correct interpretation? Well, the correct interpretation, I believe, of this, this word kanao is not that Christ emptied himself of anything at all. Instead, it's a figure of speech. Figures of speech are tricky in English language or in, in human languages. And we use them all the time. So much so that sometimes we say things that are figures of speech and we don't actually think about the image itself. This is what's called a dead metaphor. All right? It's a metaphor that's so tired and so used, so overused. The word tired is actually a metaphor if you think about it. It's a word that's so overused that we don't actually think about the original image. Let's take the word tired. The way I just used it is it's a tired metaphor. Well, what does it mean to be tired? It means to have no energy, right? It means to need, to need rest. That's a visual idea. And if we say somebody is tired, we might mean they're literally tired, like they're literally falling asleep. But we might also mean 
you know, they're getting older, they don't have the, the um, zest for life that they once had. Okay, that's a more um, metaphorical use of the word tired. When I say that some images, some metaphors are tired, I'm using the word tired metaphorically. Okay, but, but when I say that, you didn't think about the image itself because it's a dead metaphor. All right, now, all of that is to say this every human language has metaphors, it has figures of speech. Some of those figures of speech are live, and when they are, they, they communicate quite vividly. Others have been used so many times that we don't really think about the original um, like physical idea behind the metaphor any longer. Okay? Um, these, these figures of speech that I'm talking about here are called idioms, and every human language has them. Some idioms translate well to other languages, and some do not. Let me give you an example of one that does not. I had a friend in college whose major was German. Okay, that's what he was studying. His, his major was German. Just like all these years later, just saying that still is, you know, it bothers me. or Not bothers in a bad way. It impresses me, okay? Um, and I think his minor was French, actually. <laughs> so here's a guy who really likes languages, Okay. Um, and he had an intent for it. He wanted to do business abroad, and so he majored in these languages so that he would be very fluent in them. And then I think he went to graduate school for business. All right, so he added the business component on top of that. But um, one, one time we were talking, especially as I was learning Greek and I was learning more about how languages work, and I was learning about idioms and metaphors and stuff that I'd never really thought about much when I was just learning English grammar in high school, we started talking about this. And he told me in German... The, the German that is taught in schools in America is like highly literal. That is, it's stripped away of all of its metaphors. But he said conversational German has a lot of idioms. It has a lot of metaphorical speech. And so he was actually, he had this list, he showed it to me, of German idioms that he was trying to learn so that when he met somebody who's a native German speaker, he could speak their language. That is, he wouldn't have to speak super literal, super wooden German. He could speak idiomatic German to them. He could speak the language that they use. All right. Now, one of the metaphors he told me about is, is, is really interesting. I've remembered it all these years. All right. Sometimes you meet someone who's really perceptive, right? Like the first time they meet you, they, they seem to know things about you that you haven't told them yet. They just picked up on clues about maybe the way you look or the way you talk kind of betrays what part of the country you're from or what your education level is, or whatever. Okay, somebody who's very perceptive. That's what I'm talking about here. In German, they have a metaphor. They have an idiom for people who are very perceptive. You want to know what it is? If it were to translate into English, here's how it would sound. You can hear the grass grow. Now think about that image for a minute. Because you can't hear the... Nobody can literally hear the grass grow, Right? If somebody did have that good of hearing, if their hearing was that acute to where they could actually hear the grass coming out of the ground, we would say, you have a perception that I don't have. You're very perceptive in terms of your hearing. Okay, and so this idiom, you can hear the grass grow, is, is, a, is a very rich one for us in English, right? But if I said that to you, you would look at me like, what? Like, because it's not part of our common language, all right? So some idioms, some figures of speech translate well into English, into other languages, and others do not, all right? 
So let's come back to our figure of speech here, our idiom, that Christ made himself nothing or Christ emptied himself. Scholars spent so much time trying to figure out what Christ emptied himself of that they missed the fact that this is an idiom. This is a figure of speech. And it's a figure of speech, it's an idiom that doesn't say Christ emptied himself of something. It's saying that Christ humbled himself. That's all it means. Okay, and so um, this is a figure of speech for humility. What Christ emptied himself of was his pride, in a sense, if you really wanted to press the details of the metaphor. And in English, we don't use this metaphor. That's why people struggled with it. We don't say, hey, you need to empty yourself and go apologize to the teacher that you insulted. We don't talk that way, all right? And so when this metaphor was brought woodenly over into English in so-called literal translations, it created a misunderstanding for people trying to study this passage. They didn't get what was really going on because they didn't understand that this was a figure of speech. So we don't use this phrase, empty yourself, when we think someone is too proud. But we do say this, don't we? That guy is full of himself. All right, this is sort of an idiom on the same plane, right? If we say somebody is full of himself, if I said that, you would instantly know that I think that person is proud. Okay, this is sort of the opposite of that. Christ emptied himself. Well, a person who's full of himself isn't literally full of himself, okay? You're trying to press the idiom, the metaphor, too far, Instead, when we want to use a metaphor for humility, what do we say? We say he lowered himself, right? We don't mean he literally got down at somebody's feet. I mean, maybe in a few extreme cases that might happen, but not usually. Usually we mean, that's the image though. We bowed down in the sense we humbled ourselves. We lowered ourselves to somebody else. We submitted ourselves to somebody else. But when I say I lowered myself, you instantly know that I'm speaking metaphorically, that I'm using a figure of speech to talk about humbling myself. And so the proper interpretation of Philippians 2 verse 7, when it says, rather Christ made himself nothing, is not that he emptied himself of anything. Not that he emptied himself of his aspirations, not that he emptied himself of his deity, not that he emptied himself of his attributes, not that he emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes. No, all he's saying is that Christ humbled himself. He deserved as God all the rights and privileges that go with being God. And yet because he wanted to save us, he served us by lowering himself, by humbling himself, by not insisting that all of the praise and glory that go along with being God be given to him while he was on earth. That's what this passage is saying. And that fits with the context. Remember the big idea statement here is Christ valued and served us over himself so we should value and serve others over ourselves. That's what Paul is trying to emphasize to us here, that Christ did not say, well, it's too bad for you that you sinned. I could save you, but I'm not going to lower myself to become human to save you. Christ could have said that, but he didn't. Why? Because he loved us. And so he went first. He lowered himself. He emptied himself of what he deserved as God. And instead of insisting in pride on receiving what was due him, he humbled himself. He was not full of himself. He lowered himself to serve you and me. And then Paul is teaching us, In the same way, we need to lower ourselves and serve others. 
All right, so I said there were four things I wanted to discuss here. I wanted to discuss the meaning of the word, the possible interpretations, the true interpretation. We've covered all three of those. Now we come to number four, and that is, what are the, what are the implications of this for Bible study? What is this um, little incident in Christian theology, which occupied scholars for hundreds of years, what does it teach us about studying the Bible on our own? I think there are a couple of lessons for us here. First of all is this. Notice and be aware of the dangers of what is called a literal translation. Be aware of the dangers of what is called a literal translation. I've already talked a little bit about translations in this course in previous sessions. And I want to emphasize this. There are no bad translations as long as a translation is trying to faithfully convey God's word. There are bad translations in the sense that they distort the original. That's, that's a bad translation. I told you about one the last time, the Jehovah's Witness translation, the New World translation. That's, that's a bad translation. But if somebody is, is really trying and striving to bring God's word from the original language into the target language, English for us, then there's really no such thing as a bad translation. But there are different kinds of translation philosophies. The NIV that I use and like has a translation philosophy that's sometimes called dynamic equivalence. And what that means is the um, scholars who translated the NIV didn't just try to find a word-for-word correspondence between a Greek word and an English word. They didn't try to find one word to correspond to every Greek and Hebrew word. Instead, they tried to interpret the words and phrases in Hebrew and Greek, and then say, what's the best way to convey what this phrase is saying in the English language? Because here's the thing, Hebrew and Greek are both very different types of languages than English is. They work in very different ways, and so it's it's really hard to bring over in a formal way anything from Hebrew and Greek into English because word order differs, the way those words are what's called inflected, that is they are modified in order to convey meaning. It's all different from Hebrew and Greek to English. And so translators have to make decisions about how much do we try to bring over the meaning into this passage from the original. The NIV doesn't try to give you a meaning for meaning translation. That's what something like the the um, New Living Translation does. It tries to bring over what they call meaning for meaning, or what some have called meaning for meaning. The NIV doesn't go that far, but it does try to occupy a middle ground between this very formal word-for-word, line-for-line correspondence, and just kind of um, summarizing or paraphrasing the meaning. It tries to occupy this middle space. And in this middle space, what they're trying to do is give you a Bible that you can understand just by reading it, to where the metaphors are not brought into the English language in a way that might confuse you. Rather, they are interpreted so that you can understand the original intent. Now, the ESV follows what's called a more formal correspondence or what's sometimes called a literal translation. And that's why they translated this passage, Christ emptied himself. Again, there are no bad translations. And this is why you should compare several different types of translations, as I've already told you. Formal correspondence helps us in a lot of ways. Sometimes the NIV translators don't make all the right decisions. And when that happens, since I preach from the NIV, it takes me a lot of work to backtrack away from what they wrote 
in their translation to what I think the proper interpretation is. So there are drawbacks to the type of translation that I use too. What I'm trying to say is every translation has strengths and weaknesses. One of the weaknesses of a formal correspondence translation or what's called a literal translation is that it can lead you into error or at least raise questions in your mind that shouldn't be raised because it's trying to bring over a figure of speech in a way that doesn't translate to English as a figure of speech. All right, and so one of the lessons here is, again, you can choose your translation and you can love your translation. You can memorize from your translation and you can think it's the best. I'm all for that, all right? If somebody tells me my favorite translation is the ESV or the New American Standard Bible, I just smile and say, that's good. That's a good translation. I don't have any problem with that, none whatsoever, okay? What I do have a problem with is when someone says, this is the only right way to translate, and your translation, the NIV, or any other translation that's trying to do faithful, good translation, is wrong, or is bad, or is heretical, or is misleading. That's, that's incorrect. Because translation is hard, okay? It's very, very difficult science, and that's why we need different types of translations to help us understand what the original writer was trying to convey, all right? So that's my first lesson from this, is there are dangers to so-called literal translations, you might think you're getting the, the clearest and the, the one with the least amount of interpretation, but there are problems with literal translations too. Second, the second lesson that we want to take away from this is this. Don't build your doctrine on one verse, or worse, one word of the Bible. All of this controversy that I've spent the last 40 minutes talking about happened because somebody took one word and puzzled over the meaning of it so much that they started denying other clear doctrines of the Bible. And people do this. They obsess over one verse or one phrase, and that one verse or one phrase can lead them into all kinds of error. I know somebody who did this, somebody who started out in an evangelical, um, for the most part, had to, held the same Bible doctrines as us, and they wandered into error. The, the error that he particularly wandered into was that he believed that God was once one and split into three, became a tr trinity, and will someday become one again. This is heresy, all right? But he got there because Jesus said, I came out from the Father in the King James Bible. Trying to understand what out from the Father meant led him down this road of logic that denies all other, many other passages of Scripture and led him into error. And so if you are studying a verse or a word, okay, and it starts to take you in directions that are not consistent with what the church believes, that are not consistent with what you've always believed and been taught, that ought to be a clue that, hey, maybe there's something faulty about my mode of interpretation. All right, and so my lesson here is don't build your doctrine on one verse or worse, one word of one verse from the Bible. We believe what is called one of the Bible study principles that we believe is important is what's called the analogy of faith, or sometimes it's called Scripture interprets Scripture. I've talked about that before already in one of these sessions. And that is, while we need to interpret each passage according to its own words and phrases and paragraphing, we also need to compare it with the entirety of Scripture. And we ought to make sure that if um, something we think we've discerned from one passage of Scripture is contradicted by other passages of Scripture, that needs to give us a clue to re-examine our study and our interpretation. 
All right, and so this is just one word from one verse of Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, um, which means we'll be in this paragraph for even longer than you may have thought. Um, I hope this wasn't too granular in terms of the, uh, the level of um, study that's gone into it, but I do think it's important. I think it's important to understand how the church has wrestled with this. I think it's important to clarify what the Bible teaches about certain doctrines. And I think it's important for us to think about the implications for ourselves, lest we fall down the same trap that others have fallen into. The ultimate point of all of this is that Christ served us in humility. Christ was willing to not be recognized as God, to not be worshipped and served as God when he became a man in order to redeem us. And in so doing, Christ serves for us as an example of how we should serve one another. And so if it bothers you that people don't give you the props that you think you deserve for who you are when you try to serve them in the church, we need to come back to this and look at Christ who served us in humility and follow his example. When we learn to serve others in humility, as Christ served us in humility, then we will start learning what it means to find another and a better brand of happiness. That's it for today. You're dismissed. Every gym.